So yeah, I appreciate you uh, agreeing to do this because um, for the most part, you have about 20 years, more than 20 years of injury experience. Sadly to say more than 20 years. So it's about 24, almost 25 years in various roles in industry before I came back to the university to uh, to teach in my current role. So You're doing uh, senior design advising, which we're I'm happy that you, you're on board and giving us the actual um, flow. You gave us like a Gantt chart, which I know no industry people will use to like plan out their entire project. So what, what have you learned from uh, like doing a senior design advising? Yeah, when I talk to folks about, you know, there's industrial experience. I think one of the biggest things that, you know, if I were talking to someone in in industry, we might have a big meeting and say, hey, this, this project is running behind. We need to put some more resources on it. We need to hire a consultant. We're going to push this two or three weeks. Um, well, senior design, the deadlines are very hard. Um, that, uh, you know, one of the things I struggle with is, you know, even some of the bureaucracy here on campus that, you know, if it takes us two weeks to get something ordered or it, something like that, get a key or access to a lab. That's a big chunk of the of these projects. So I think it's helping folks understand that the, the student teams are really under some pretty hard deadlines and unforgiving, you know. In your case, April of next year, you're going to, you know, May, you're going to walk across the stage, project's over, whether we want it to be or not, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I, I think it's helping understand that we've got really rigid deadlines where in an industry setting, we we would maybe flex those a little bit or flex the resources. Uh, the, the student teams, there's X number of members on the team. I can't supplement that with uh, with more resources. So. One thing I, I heard from last semester was uh, one of the elite times for uh, material that they bought was over a year. <laughs> so, and you only have like six months to get your senior design project done. Right. We we were trying to order a PLC, and we 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 wound up with. Uh, there's a company called Automation Direct that has stuff in stock, but they're sort of a lower quality uh, uh, material, sort of uh, the Walmart PLCs, right? Um, but they had it in stock, so we got it. But, you know, we were looking at using Allen Bradley or Siemens. Well, they had a 42-week lead time. That's, that's not going to do us a lot of good. And we had one case where a group ordered a drone in the fall. Mm-hmm. It didn't show up. Luckily, a team in the spring needed the same drone, and it, it showed up in March, and they were able to do a little bit with it. But it's, uh, yeah, lead times, it, it's it's better now, but yeah. during the whole COVID time was an interesting senior design experience. Yeah, I can't imagine some of the... Um was going through the, the heads of the kids because they they've been preparing for senior design their entire undergraduate studies and then COVID hits and all your um luckily for my project we don't need any uh physical parts but if, if you are building say a human powered vehicle and you can't get the part then it kind of devastates your uh yeah and and what we did we actually um 
So the the spring of 2020 was we sort of had to make do with the projects because you know they were two months from completing when we went into lockdown. But that fall, I specifically picked projects that I, I referred to them as no bigger than a bread box, <laughs> or they they had to fit in a backpack. Nice. That if something happened where we went into lockdown again or whatever, the students could put it in their backpack and at least work on it in their apartment. So it, uh, but yeah, okay. that lent, we didn't do big projects for a while just for those issues. That yeah, it, uh, you you would have been uh, very frustrating as a student team. So you picked up projects yourself. Um, we get a few projects from industry. Um, some from various professors, um, but it, the uh, senior design is sort of a, a, a machine here and uh, for us with, with, with all the, the teams we have, we need about 26 to 28 projects a year. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So there's, uh, mostly it, I'm talking to folks about projects and making projects up luckily my industrial experience i was always good at we can make that a project we can make that a project so so you talked about how uh you started doing the time tracking and that was a pretty big factor of whether a team was successful or not so what other factors would you quantify as making a successful senior design project um teamwork certainly a a big element of what we do is that the uh the the members of the team work together, have a communicate. You don't have to be the strongest um, team person, but you, you, you're still able to communicate with your team and uh, get things done. Uh, planning. Um, everybody on the team doesn't have to be a good planner or project manager, but certainly the teams that have a good planner project manager i think flow better because they're always sort of looking at the master plan mm -hmm. um, yeah the big picture when some people are more nitty-gritty detail guys yeah so i think it's finding that balance of and, and it may just be one member of the team somebody's taking that high level look of yeah we, we've got to get there we're really stuck here now how do we get out of this how do we get out of this iterative mode and that's part of what we try to do in the weekly meetings with me is that if a team is stuck, how do we, how do we sort of get them unstuck and moving forward? <laughs> well, my team is in a, like you said, we're in a pretty good spot considering um, we are doing a CVT model for uh, in Simulink for the Baja team. And I've talked to a few other teams that are the other VE group, which is uh, – taking the Nissan Leaf that was cut in half and trying to figure out all the sensors and all the uh, ca canvas uh, mm. <laughs> information. And that, that, that they definitely are uh, needing a little more um, input from <laughs> you. Yeah, well, and that, that team is... Uh, so this fall, we've got really six teams that are pretty joined with an ECE team. Mm -hmm. um, so the the... the Vehicle sim Nissan Leaf uh, cut in half team are, are, uh, are working together with an ECE team. So it's finding that balance of 
we the Emmy style is a little different than the way ECE approaches, just in terms of deadlines and stuff. Um, How would you? Uh, can you go into that a little more? The differences between ECE. Well, the, the ECE professors, you know, have a different approach to senior design. So it's a little mm-hmm. more. They're very focused on getting to a design, getting to a prototype very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. Where we, I take the approach of a little more planning, um, yeah. and and re, well, it's easier to make a ECE prototype. Right. If you're building a circuit, we grab a breadboard, we grab the circuit components, maybe uh, do okay. some programming. ME, right, we could spend a lot of money, do a lot of welding <laughs> to, to make yeah. a prototype. So it's I think part of it's just the size and the scale. But it's been good for the teams to on that project to understand what the different goals, different things that well, you know, you may face face something similar in a corporate environment you're you um you may have a sort of have two bosses where you know mm-hmm. one's your one's your functional you know you may be a designer you have a manager that manages a design group but you're also on a project team and the project manager has a sort of a reporting relationship there too and the de- design leader is really looking for you to do follow the process, do the design well. The project manager, you're, you, we need to hit my deadlines. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean the I customer is emailing, calling me up every day. Yeah, they're so. emailing, they're calling, uh, and they man, And part of the reason you have that in the corporate world is so you don't cut the design corners. You know, the design mm-hmm. manager is making sure we're following our standards. If the analysis is not telling us what we want, we take the time to fix that. Project manager is trying to hit his dates, right? Yeah. He's uh, uh, so it, 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 I think it's a good experience, and it's been good for us that we'll get down and, and talk on that team, and they pretty quickly. And uh, I know you, you've spoken with Brandon, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know working with with that group, we've quickly figured out the can bus. So last week we were able to make a decision oh, good. due to not use the CAN bus. Oh, okay. That's uh, one well, way to encry- take care of that. What, what they've discovered is it's encrypted. Mm, yeah. All the information on the, the, the native CAN bus for the car is encrypted. And for some reason, Nissan does not allow us to, is not going to send us the codes to uh, decrypt it. To de- de- decrypt the. Uh, yeah. The, what's going on so yeah so uh noah cs major with uh, some cryptography skills gonna yeah. be enlisted yeah no, we well we we also like to have them as a corporate partner yeah, that, so, that'd probably be a so so pointing out idea. that we, we 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 had the hbc break their encryption uh, <laughs> we we use 400 hours computer time to uh yeah you gotta get some quantum computing in there to, yeah I've, yeah we got a we got a team over in c-rock uh Hacking your uh, hacking your car. So yeah, I want to get back into uh, your industry experience because, um, or first of all, I want to work backwards. So, how did you uh, come to start teaching at Tech? Oh, well, the how I wound up back here was so. I think you know my advice I give to people when you're doing your career. There's going to be certain 
times you're going to be at a point where you're making a decision, you know, you're at a decision point. So in the spring of 2018, the company I was with um, went through a major restructuring, CEO, everything. So <laughs> wasn't working there anymore. So I had a decision to make of where I was, you know, in my career, what I was going to do. Um, you know, what was that next chapter going to be for me? Uh, and, and the position was open here at tech and certainly it held, um, the other Dr. Pardue, uh, working here, um, certainly helped that understanding to, to, to make that decision as to why I would come back to tech. So I understand understood a little bit more about what the educational process was and what I was getting myself into, <laughs> uh, from that standpoint, cause it is a big, it is, it is a big difference between industry and, um, and teaching, just understanding all the education theory and things like that, that hmm. goes into, uh, goes into things really it's not just reading from a powerpoint no it's not just reading from a powerpoint and 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 i'm trying to get better at that and uh but it 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 takes a lot of thought and structure Mm -hmm. to uh to do things you know even even if we take senior design as an example Mm -hmm. the structure we have in senior design is totally different than the first time I taught it with the students, you know, there's, we use some different tools, but it's part of it is, is in education theory, you call it's called scaffolding. How do we, how do we help you move to that next level of understanding hmm. of understanding or it's that, you know, you're here as a student, you need to be here. What are the steps? Okay. And how do we put a structure in place to do that? You know, and that's why we, you know, you turn in parts of the proposal, we give feedback, that back and forth is to, to, to help with that guided inquiry yeah. uh, of doing things. And, and it's in senior design, we talk about it's more about the process than the end product. Because if you get focused just on the end product, um, but, and that gets into the, since we do have a finite time mm-hmm. to do things, um, it's very hard to iterate. And, and when you when you when you look in industry, you realize that you're working on a project, but the company's done this thirty or forty times, right? You know, <laughs> they've done this over and over. There's been so much learning. You know what not to do. So mm-hmm. as a student team, sometimes you don't know we. You know, it's new to us as a team as a, at the university. It's new to the team, so we don't know what not to do. Mm-hmm. So we may get to the end of a senior design project, and we'll know the the seven or eight things you shouldn't do. <laughs> These are the things that don't work, um, and it, it's a good senior design project. And yeah. the teams have learned a lot, but we we don't have this cool widget sitting on the table that yeah. does stuff. So. Yeah. 
Well, one thing I learned in the carpet world is uh, the cross-team uh, learning from mistakes is kind of a, a roadblock that a lot of big corporations face. So it could be that if there is not very good a communication between teams, that they'll be making the same mistake across different mm-hmm. uh, divisions, which I don't know what a good answer for that is. But yeah, that's, a, that's just something that I, I learned in my short time in my co-op. But um, one thing that I appreciate talking to you about is... A, Growing up, um, we see movies of when you get to college, you're going to have a midterm and a final. And if you uh, get a 50 on the first one and 100 on the second one, then you'll be okay. But there's only two grades. And uh, if you don't make it, then you're not cut out for that. And that's um, that's something that's, uh, like you said, it's a little different now. That Yeah, it's different now. It's, there's still a lot of, uh, and that gets into the, what we talked about with the education theory. It's what are the assessments? What are we looking for? Um, one of the things that um, we're looking at is more competency-based, as is of interest to me, is it, it's not that you made a 50 on that exam. Um, well, you didn't do well. What don't you understand? How do we fix that? Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know... I think it's moving away from that sort of once and done that if you understand it as a student, yes, move on to the next subject. If you don't understand it, you're going to be an engineer. We need you to understand this. Mm-hmm. Let's loop back and how do we, how do we fill that in? So yeah. it, it's, you know, it's a, it, that's been the, the fascinating thing for me in industry. We, Everybody thinks of complexity, but in education, a lot of most people don't think of the complexities that go into even structuring a course. That's been real eye-opening for me. Is that um, there 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 are people over in the College of Education that you can get a PhD in curriculum and instruction, which is just designing courses um, and I've, we've been working with some people on doing that, but, but you know, we, we talked about the Gantt chart for senior design. How do you lay out a Gantt chart for your course? What are we going to cover? What speed are we going to cover it? Mm-hmm. Are we giving quizzes or the design tools? How are you going to assess that and make sure they know it? So it's, it's, it can be quite the structure that uh, it was going to be in English. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's just like a one in the, you know, a fluke. But, yeah, we can restart. Um, yeah, we were just talking about, uh, you know, education and Gantt charts, which is a very, I'm sure people will love to hear. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in it. And I oh, yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's like anything, you know, the one thing I've learned in my career is people, you know, people think of the aircraft industry or uh, um, some industries as being more high tech. Yeah. But when you when you dig down to a level, uh, there's lots of detail in, in any industry that you that you get into. So it, uh, um, yes, people can regale you with all sorts of detail, way way too much detail for uh, for any pretty much anything. So I mean, I, I appreciate whenever you bring up um, whenever your experiences at the sheet. Um, a sheet metal uh, mm. f- 
uh, designing and manufacturing and also at Cummins and I don't know I just, I just looked at your LinkedIn so I had a good idea of your um, your last uh, couple of experiences so how come you uh, you wanted to did you always want to go back for a PhD um, I never I never stopped going to school so as one of those I left undergrad and went to work on my master's Okay. And then um, when I was working on my master's, um, Dr. Hahn, who is a professor here, was doing some work with NASA on modeling rocket combustion. And so we were able to write a, a graduate student research fellowship proposal and it got funded. Uh, so I had a fellowship to continue my work there and get my Ph.D., so it was it was more of a sort of a flow through uh, down the river sort of uh, thing just <laughs> to get my PhD. Yeah. So can't say I started with that intent, but uh, it, we we sort of happened into it. So yeah, I mean it worked out in the end, right? So. Yeah, yeah. One of the professors used to joke that I was far too practical to have my PhD. <laughs> so. At the, I think that's why I wound up in industry for a long time before coming back to academia. So yeah, that's, that's it's weird that when you get a PhD, the industry people say they don't know where to put you, and you, what are, what are you going to do with a PhD in industry? It, it is it's a little more prevalent in industry. Um, you you can be an outlier. Um, so in some ways, in industry, it can be a help. In some way, it can be a hindrance. Um, it, it just depends on what you want to do, but it, yeah. it's a little more commonplace than it used to be. Yeah, it used to be if you had your PhD, you were going to be at a university or a national lab mm-hmm. yeah. uh, sort of situation. So, so how did you? Why did you want to become a ME before you? Uh... Um, why did I want to become an ME? The I grew up on a farm, so I always enjoyed everything mechanical. Um, but also being on the farm, realizing that there had to be a better way to make a living, that was a lot of work. <laughs> there, there had to be an easier way. So some of the, the teachers I worked with sort of introduced us to engineering and what was going on there. Um, and then that. Um, but it, it's pretty funny. I've got a document my mom had from when I was like 12 I was going to be an ME. Uh, really? Yeah. So it. Uh, That's a good story. Sort of made that decision and was mar- marched into being an ME. So. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to a few uh, engineers in the past, and it's oh, it's always strange when you don't uh, an ME that has a lot of industry experience. I don't really have the the practical background that you know they they work mostly on in an office or in CAD most of the time, and they don't really understand you know how. I mean, I'm sure they've taken, you know, DOM, they know how gears and levers and, you know, machines and hydraulics work, but it's, I feel like having that foundation of like a more technical mechanical background, if you work on a farm or with cars or what have you, it's, it's a lot of, uh, it builds you up. Well, I think it, I think it helps you visualize what's going on Mm -hmm. that you, I know for me, a lot of the situations we were covering in class, oh, yeah, I've seen that. You know, I've worked on something like that. Oh, that's why that broke uh, when, we, when we tried to do it that way. So I think, yeah, it, it, it certainly gives you a leg up in the ME. 
because I think a big piece of mechanical engineering is the visualization, being able to see and understand what's going on so that uh, I think you, you, you have a leg up if, you, if you've had some experience doing that. So Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of hard to have experience in, uh, you know, rockets when you're a kid, unless you're, you, you know, do the bio rockets and yeah. tell me about, uh, your, uh, with, uh, work with NASA. Um, it was interesting. Um, you know, it was a, it was a great experience. The more you work with NASA, you, you realize that the projects just take forever. Uh, you know, the government funding, um, you can look today that you know SpaceX is all about launch, 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 yeah. and learning. You know, if something fails, hey, we're learning. Mm-hmm. NASA, you know, doesn't have that mentality anymore. They, I think, they're a little gun shy that if something fails, um, you know, it's reflecting. And mm-hmm. and you yeah. you'll find that in whether you're NASA and SpaceX or an older established company mm-hmm. versus a new startup company. versus you know, versus, old guard. Yeah. yeah. Startup versus old guard. The old guard companies don't take as many risk. Right. I mean, it makes sense. They have a lot more capital and a image to uphold. You know? Yeah. But it, you realize that it, they, they, it is more that they're upholding that image or they're worried about wasting that capital. Um, you know where the startup is bet the farm yep. on on doing this working, and if it does work, you get lots of payoff. But uh, yeah, I mean it's like the similar the correlation with like you know Ford, GM versus Tesla and Rivian, and mm-hmm. they could do the most. I don't know. Elon could just make a decision, and then everyone will be working on it. Versus I don't know how many checks and balances Ford has down right. the chain of command. <clears throat> The agility, flexibility, uh, big companies are trying to trying to do some of that. Um, but even in the automotive industry, you know, for a long time, Toyota with the Prius and things were l- some of the leaders in the mm-hmm. electrification and stuff. Yeah. But they sort of let that go and have been bypassed and are trying to play catch up now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they do have the first, um, I believe, the first solid state uh, hybrid, uh, and they are they're working on it. But yeah, definitely not as a they're not an industry leader. I don't think anymore. Just right. Based well, on their- someone you would expect that twenty years, you know, the Prius. I would assume, you know, you're almost twenty years into it now. <laughs> yeah. They haven't been able to leverage what they've learned from that into the next generation, the next mm-hmm. generation. Yeah. Um, well, that, that was such a big hit. I mean, you still see, you know, early freezes today. They're one of that's. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Toyota is still the, one of the the biggest uh, selling manufacturer in um in the world. Not not in America. I think the F one fifty is the yeah <laughs> trucks the biggest pickup pickups win in America, but mm-hmm. around the rest of the world, it, uh, it's the cars. But it, it's just interesting to see, you know, that. The big companies may make a foray into doing something like that, but then somebody else sort of takes that and runs with it. So yeah. there's all sorts of examples, in, especially in the technology world, of uh, doing that. So Yeah. Have you uh, 
looked into Toyota's like manufacturing uh, that that important paper that they did. Yeah, the the Toyota way, yeah. the lean manufacturing that's um, uh, pretty um, pretty commonplace in industry now. That that is a standard on the production floor. Those uh, mechanisms, the uh, Kanban, all those sort of concepts that come <laughs> the from Japanese words. that that come from the Toyota uh, system uh, are you'll find them everywhere in uh, in the industry now. So it's pretty prevalent of really trying to how do you put a structure to the production process and how do you a lot of what it is is how do we use the workers what they're learning and bring that into the process mm. so i talked to dr Chen about this but i mean you both of you worked at cummins so how do you think um cummins is gonna um work in the future with them because don't they mostly focus on diesel uh, um they're, they're in diesel <clears throat> They've made some moves in natural gas. I saw the other day they're doing some hydrogen. Um, Fuel cells? Hydrogen internal combustion. Internal so, combustion. It's, um, um, so I think they try to diversify uh, things to, like any big company, they, they'll do small bets into these exploratory and they may not necessarily they may partner with another company uh, to to do that um, and they've done quite a bit of work uh, for some Department of Transportation Department of Energy research projects on what would a, uh, an electrified heavy truck look like what mm -hmm. would uh, what would these technologies look like? So I think that gives them a lot of understanding of what uh, what capabilities you need and uh, and things. And so you know, you're. I think it's understanding that if we're if we're having trouble electrifying a passenger car and getting the distances, we're, we're certainly not going to be able to do it with a large truck right mm -hmm. that there's the power requirements are even that much higher that you know if the trailer has to be full of batteries to get the uh, distance <laughs> uh it, it doesn't do us a lot of good so yeah. it uh so I, I think you're going to you know as we 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 look at this um the co2 and and how we balance that that you know, I think passenger cars are certainly going to be the first thing to electrify, um, you know, delivery vehicles, things like that. And then it'll, the technologies will move up into the, the, the trucks and stuff. Yeah. And the, the, the trucks may be fuel cells or something, whether that's going to be a battery technology or mm -hmm. how that's going to, how that's going to play out. Cause I think the, the problem you're going to have with the heavy trucks to get the distances and everything you need. Mm -hmm. The battery technology is going to have to really advance to uh, to get there. So, yeah, Dr. Chen's um, one of his F two fifties. They put a pretty rudimentary uh, hybrid system into it, and I believe when it was towing, it only got one mpg better. So, I, I, yeah, you're definitely right that the uh, s smaller vehicles, city, uh, you know, compact cars and delivery vehicles 
are going to be the early adopters and it's going to be difficult for larger like mid to full size trucks and um transportation you know semis and it's just the the amount of energy it needs to produce is really not there with the lithium ion which um, i've been told that's hopefully solid state will be uh be able to alleviate some of those uh limitations on lithium ion but it really um well we'll see and we'll also we, t- we talked about how uh, the aerospace is catching up or trying to um break into evs and that, that would be interesting but also it's a little like we talked about like the uh new uh startups versus old guard and the aerospace industry is about as uh as slow and as safe as you can get so it, it, it's gonna be difficult for them definite old guard uh there uh dr roberts is doing quite a bit of work um on what would electrification look like in a lot of cases they're looking at fuel cells instead of battery technologies because you fundamentally you need to know that you're able to have continuous power and you need some redundancy right the um uh, your 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 car runs out of charge call it triple a call triple a the plane runs out of charge. Uh, you got some. You, you're you're going to have some issues there. So it's how do we, uh, how do how do the technologies develop to maintain the safety and uh, and do things. But yeah, the 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 aircraft is going to be another one of uh, how do, how do we get there? Yeah, yeah. What um, Boeing was doing with uh, their new uh, carbon fiber wings they can they that was pretty cool they could increase the angle of attack because the amount of um, stress at uh, i believe a certain um direction it was one of the limitations with the uh the riveted uh, aluminum or steel wings so i'm excited to see the future for you know whatever crazy you know e- when the first ev cars came out they tried to make them all futuristic so uh, i hope that the aerospace will i don't know be able to have capture some of that um, more innovative uh, design for electric planes. I, I'd love mm-hmm. to see what a, a first prototype electric plane would look like. Yeah, well, I think it'll it'll be like um, we talked about with the with the transportation. You know, I think certainly the the short haul private plane, two or three people mm-hmm. going two or three hundred miles. Airport hopping will be be one thing. Um, how do we how do we do a seven thirty seven with three hundred people <laughs> and you know go go a thousand miles is it, it's going to be something else is going to take uh, take a while to to get there. Yeah, but you know it's uh, uh, it, it is amazing when you. You look back a hundred years, right? <laughs> if, we, if you go back to 1922 and yeah, the uh, Brothers. And, and see where the world was and where yeah. we are now, that uh, uh, it, it's, it's a different place. But it, it is hard to uh, understand the different. You know, I, I think we we get impatient sometimes and oh, waiting yeah. on things to Especially develop. Especially our generation, my generation. <laughs> <laughs> The kids these days, they uh, they want the new iPhone every every year compared to, I don't know how many generations ago. They're the fastest way they get from point A to point B is a horse. If mm-hmm. uh, if you don't have a train track, so I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's it's 
going looking back, it's been quite our last couple of years. Yeah, well, it was a great series a few years ago on PBS where they went through the first person to drive across the U.S. in 1906. <laughs> and it's just a great story. Uh, they got somewhere and they couldn't get gasoline Oof. because there weren't filling stations anymore. No, the they had problems yeah. with roads. They had to, it was a, a huge effort just to figure out where they could drive. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think it was 1906 they did this. They get to Chicago something's broken they have to go to the blacksmith to get it fixed the blacksmith uh, yeah the, the, you know you don't go to mechanic they went to the blacksmith to get it to get this part made and and one of the guys on the trip was a mechanic you know they you had to have a full-time guy with you <laughs> to to do that and it it took you know it took over a month to drive across the, the country <laughs> So oh, it's just wild. a great story to to go and think about, you know, where we are now compared to to something like that. Yeah. But, Do you remember what a vehicle was? Was that a Model T? This was pre. This was pre Model T. Really? These were, you know, the, these were the days of the vehicles were all handmade. You like, know. Oh man. You know. It, 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 you know, it was somebody's make, but you know everything's handmade. Yeah. So. What kind of engine did it have? Uh, it's probably a little two cylinder, maybe ten or fifteen. The Baja probably has more horsepower. <laughs> so it, uh, was it still a? Uh, we call it a um, four stroke. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, I forgot. Whatever. Yeah, uh, it was. It was probably a four stroke compression or um, spark ignition uh, engine, but it. It would, you know, it'd be more equivalent to your lawnmower than anything resembling a modern vehicle. So, yeah, yeah it's crazy how uh, far internal combustion engines have come with them. Um, and I'm taking an IC engine class and we're talking about all the you know, valve timing with all the ECU and turbocharging. And it still only produces like 40% efficiency, but it feels pretty good considering how dense fuel is. The the when you when you look at IC engines and you look at diesel and gasoline, they're such perfect fuels. They they remain liquid mm. in our normal operating temperatures. They don't you know they don't flash to vapor. They don't um, they don't freeze when we get cold. Mm. Uh, so they just sort of optimal energy density, right? Yeah. That they're just all pure energy even though that their thermal efficiency is 40 percent or whatever for a modern engine you know it's still pretty effective and i just think over my lifetime so i was a teenager right around 1980 <clears throat> started driving my mom had this car so it's at the end of the energy embargo or the the sort of first oil embargoes yeah. of the seventies. Everybody's trying to get to fuel efficient cars, but the cars were still the cars weighed a ton. You know the metal's all thick, oh, yeah. so it was it was basically a, a nineteen seventy Chevy Nova, and it had a two hundred thirty one cubic inch engine, which displacement wise would be huge now because I think that translates to three or four liter engine right you know nice size engine was terribly underpowered <laughs> it was just you would push on the gas and 
you would be going up a hill and you were afraid <laughs> you were going to have to get out and push. The valves would uh, the valves would be clicking. It had, was and you know had a carburetor. Yeah, carburetor, two barrel carburetor. It was terrible. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, because one. I think one of the I had a car. I think it was about three and a half liters. So uh, at one point I had a had like this turbocharged car with a three and a half liter, you know, pin you back in the seat sort of uh, experience. And just thinking how far the engine technology had come with fuel injection, valve timing, that you know more power, fuel economy was so much better that. that the, the technology had just advanced so much just over the last 30 or 40 years to, yeah. to get us here. So, Yeah. Are you a car guy? Um, not really. At one point in my life, maybe, uh, as I've gotten older, I'm more of a, a woodworking guy, so I'm a tool snob but for, oh, for the yeah. wood shop. But uh, I realized with the, with, with the, with the cars, it was... Uh, you were going to go down a rabbit hole of uh, every. Uh, I've decided that every everybody sort of has their hobby that's going to eat all their spare money. Pretty much, and time. It, yeah, you know, money and time. You know, you're either going to be a car person, play golf, play tennis, <laughs> you know, hunt, fish. Yeah. You know, you mine can. currently is woodworking. So it, uh, that's a pretty good one. You could get something out of it. Yeah, something physical. Uh, you know, there's furniture, so there's furniture around the house, and uh, yeah. I make things for friends. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, it, I've I've toyed with being a car guy over the years, but uh, really, when I was uh, my last job, I traveled quite a bit, so it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to be a car person when you're just walking out into the uh, <laughs> rental lot and. Uh, <laughs> picking a car up so yeah yeah my parents always got the eco special got the like the buick enclave with an underpowered one liter yeah (laughs) so uh but i don't know if you kept up with uh you talked we just talked about it took a month for you know back in the 1900s to go cross country and during uh when covid was uh shut down all the roads and everything uh they just did a 20 i think it was a sub 24 hour cannonball and then uh (laughs) and an audi disguised as a, a Taurus so it's, it's pretty crazy how yeah. cars are today how do you, how do you yeah and it, if you if you could figure out how to refuel while moving oh, yeah. they had a f- big fuel fuel cell in the back okay with, uh, they, with all the all this all like 10 screens for like you know Google Maps and Waze and laser jammers and it's a whole uh, it's a whole uh, bag of can of worms but yeah I'm, I'm into all that stuff so it's it's pretty pretty cool yeah yeah it's uh yeah, there's a. It helps to have a road that's a continuous ribbon across the country to to do that. Oh, yeah. So. yeah, I mean, I just did a, a cross country drive. Uh, I dur- <laughs> I was actually during a during the summer when you had a manufacturing uh, mm. that uh, D- uh, DFM and mm-hmm. we uh, we had that uh, holiday in June and so I just decided all right, we have a week off. Uh, I'll go. I drove to California and then mm-hmm. came back and then uh, after the class was over, I went back to Connecticut. So. Combined, it was like I don't know, a couple thousand, for like close to five thousand miles. Wow, that was a pretty, that was a pretty fun drive. But um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, we, we get spoiled here in the U.S. that uh, the interstate system with, with the driving. When I was in grad school, we used to enjoy it. There were 
we had this exchange program with German students. Ooh, that's cool. And, and they were so fun. And uh, so, you know, gas, it was the late 80s, early 90s. Gas is relatively cheap. Um, they would buy this big American land barge. And every weekend, they were so funny. They would pick a direction and they would drive because it was just a foreign concept to them that you could drive for a day and not cross, not need a passport. Yeah. Not you know you get didn't to the cross end. a border, <laughs> yeah. you and so they just loved it. But they were they were the most adventurous, fun that. Were, yes, we just you know they would set out and however far they could drive that weekend. That's where they went to. Oh, and, that's awesome. Yeah, but no Google Maps back then. <laughs> no Google Maps, you know, the old school maps that oh, yeah. uh, of how to do things, but. Yeah. Uh, they they just had the the greatest time with it of, uh, but I think sometimes we uh, we 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 lose sight of that that uh, you know being in Europe uh, especially I did a lot of stuff in Belgium yeah you drive for two hours you're in another country uh, uh, do they uh, require a, a visa for anything no after the EU yeah. Uh, it, it's sort of open borders between all the countries. So you just drive, you know, there's no stopping and reviewing your passport or anything, except when you go into the UK. But, uh, <laughs> oh, those Brits. but that's a, yeah, I definitely want to do a Europe trip eventually. Like you talk about, like the, the, the Germans feeling cool here cause they get to drive, but they, they had the Audubon they, and they can, you know, go to, they could go to down to Austria, to mm-hmm. Italy and go all the way to Spain and, and like it's it's actually pretty tiny. You can do it like in a couple of months. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the thing to do in Europe is uh, you realize, especially in the cities, um, trying to drive is almost detrimental. Mm-hmm. Is because if you have a car, you have to figure out where to park it, <laughs> and you know just maneuvering around and stuff. So, uh, uh, you know, I really enjoyed just hopping trains and moving around mm-hmm. in Europe. Is they just have the infrastructure to do that, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's definitely eye-opening to to go and uh, do other parts of the world. So yeah, well, it's kind of hard when your you know, city is built a thousand years ago and the cobblestone streets are not wide enough for a, you know a compact, let right. alone American. You know, I don't know how many F one fifties or not many. Or, you you know. do not want the big. Uh, you you want more of a European sized car if you're going to be in a city to, to maneuver around. So yeah. uh, yes, the the roads, um, yeah the 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 company we owned in Belgium we would there was this one road that people parked on the sides and you would literally have to stop and look and make sure someone was not coming <laughs> from the other way. It was a it was this crazy way to get through. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, like the culture of America is built around like that. That's why trains never really popped up here. I mean, I mean the country is also huge, so it, it kind of is mm-hmm. hard for um to build you know, massive uh, road uh, railways. But yeah, just the, the freedom of having a, a car here that you pretty much is required compared to like other places complain like why is the public transportation so bad in America? It's, it's because everyone has a car. <laughs> Yeah, America is centered around a car, um, but you, you, and even in the states, you know, if you're in New York City, 
mm. you can get away with not having a yeah. car. Um, and if you're in an urban setting, in most places in the States, you can now, uh, between public transport and Uber, uh, <laughs> you, can, uh, you, you can make it without a car. But it's the, our, our culture in the U.S. is very car-centered. Yes. Car-centric, shall we say. Yeah. Speaking of Uber, what, what do you think of the... Um, we talked a little bit before about, you know, uh, new technologies and taking out a speech or taking out all the stuttering and ums, but, I mean, what, what do you think are any, you know, potentially dangerous or weird, uh, too too uh, too fast for our, 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 like, morals to catch up with in terms of the software? Well, I think, you know, on the software side, certainly AI is an area that I guess just recently you know I think it was Google that did the AI that'll sort of you give it ideas and it'll put together artwork oh yeah for you but the, I read a story that they realized it was taking sort of copyrighted pieces and stuff and Using it was using other people's art as inspiration, right? So, what are the moral implications of that? Or something simple, like you know, this art thing that you could do for funds, um, so that you're you're using other people's inspiration. But certainly, that the was it CRISPR that does all the mm-hmm. biological stuff yeah, or gene editing. Yeah, we go go in gene editing. Uh, you know, we're definitely getting into uh, some zones where Hollywood has uh, given us some movies that say you probably don't want to go there or what happens if this goes unchecked. Um, I think for most people, the um, uh, for the engineer, you know, AI is very tantalizing, um, but you're, you realize you're, you, it, the computer's learning stuff but it's learning stuff you don't necessarily know what it's learning. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's it's a tool, um, but sometimes you know how do we balance the tool with the moral implications, but also the hey we really need to understand how this is working uh, mm-hmm. and understand the physics of what's going on. So hmm. yeah, I really um. I thought a lot about it because I follow a lot of uh, you know EV researchers that deal with machine learning to create self-driving cars and also just more of a curiosity of the future of AI AGI and I don't really it really is, is it just going to happen at some point someone's not going to um, come up with a program that's going to learn by itself and like like you said it's it's hard to to for a human to understand what the program is learning and even vice versa. How, how do you program a, a computer to have human you know, instincts, uh, morals, or it's, it's not going to think like us if depending on how you program it, but I, I don't know enough about it. And I just hope that the people have the, the fail safes and the, the um, presence of mind to have an idea of what they're actually doing before it, uh, you know, consumes us all. Yeah. And I, I think those are things we're gonna have to deal with. And I read an article one time that was really looking at the opposite that as you got to more self-driving, 
we get to more of these cars that have more of the augmentation, right? The auto stops and, and things like that, that as people become, people start to abuse that, that the, the guy pulls out in front of you because he knows your car will do everything to avoid hitting him without you doing anything, right? You, he's, they're really tr- abusing the technology to the mm-hmm. point of, uh, I, I, know, I know you're not going to run into me. Your car will take all the steps to, to prevent that. Yeah. Um, so what, you know, what, what, are the, what are the downsides of humans interacting with that where the humans think the machine is going to protect them? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that brings up a, a kind of scary point where it, it does your personal vehicle, is that going to prioritize your personal safety if something happens in front of you? Or is it going to, based on some you know hidden lines of code, it's going to do something to protect... It, it, you know, it's that classic uh, paradox. Uh, is your car making a decision to sacrifice you to save the 10 kids? Or yeah, you, yeah, the tram problem, <laughs> the yeah. philosophy yeah, yeah, 101. Whatever, whatever those uh, philosophy paradoxes, do you save the one or do you save the 10? What does your yeah. car prioritize? Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I hope that the uh, people that are doing the devs that are writing those are have some, you know, moral integrity because they, yeah. they, they control uh there's a there's a rabbit hole I, I, i'm not sure i haven't gone down because it's pretty um it's pretty dark but you know, you know how like social media is a program to basically keep you addicted and keep you scrolling and that that's something that's something that i've had uh some i don't know a lot more problems with the you know ai or like self-driving cars is like programming an entire generation of kids to you know have a little focus and just want to be programmed to go to their phone whenever they want you know dopamine yeah i think the ai interaction in the virtual world is, is going to really stretch the moral limits and stuff a lot quicker than what we're doing in the physical world that will we'll, hopefully we'll figure out some of the ethics and things because we're already seeing that you know the Facebook feeds and the YouTube and you know and we we as simple as something YouTube right that it'll start feeding you hey you're interested in this so your feed suddenly is uh, is is all about cars right you don't yeah, see yeah. anything but cars and oh he really likes AI so that you know you're yeah. You, you just really it's easy to get very focused um and, and that's all being driven by the ais at the at the companies so yeah one one other thing that is evokes me is when they have the ads that are targeted towards you and they kind of know so like adsense is the google's ad program and it's pretty much google owns everything at this point so Whenever you're on a, like some random website, that they know uh, how to t- like. Oh, you, you you on Amazon, you you typed in you know like a battery pack, and and then you're just you know doing something else. And hey, this is just something I just I talked about or searched you know, hours or days ago. It's just it's just kind of weird. Yeah, there's some uh, stories. It's always funny um, with. Uh, my kids are uh, college age, so everybody's buying stuff on dad's Amazon account. So it's just funny, you know, 
I'll look for something so I know they get feed on woodworking tools. I get feeds on the latest headphones and and, and all this or whatever they're looking for. So it's uh, there. There have been some uh, interesting, uh, interesting thing. Yeah, Target. There was a story a couple of years ago that their AI would uh, um, would would pick up people being pregnant before they knew they were pregnant oh, that's, that's a because spooky. of the the stuff they were buying mm, yeah where they, you know where yeah. just the customer loyalty program was gathering all this information they could start making these weird decisions off of it so mm, yeah and there's some strange implications of them having all that data about us so yeah yeah alright so we're like at, almost at an hour and uh so how, how are you feeling? I'm good. Okay. Yeah, we can go like a little longer because um, depending on how you, you're doing. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to make sure you're not spending too much of your time. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so let's shift gears a little bit because I usually do like talking about all the stuff we I'm, I'm interested in. That's why I ask because um, for the most part, it's hard to find high-level conversation. So um, what... um. How, was, how difficult was it to have a family with like all your um, like work background? It seems like you're you know VP in engineering, R and D. Well, it was a, it was a, it was a team effort over the years that uh, there were times the you know there were times that uh, Doctor Sally and I were both engaged, and you know one of us there would be days okay, you have to be primary. You know, if somebody gets sick during the middle of the day, you're the one that's going to go to school and, and get them. You know, I'm in an important meeting. I'm going to be out of town. So it, it's, it was really just, it was a project to be managed in, a, in and of itself. And that was part of the, um, and, and part of that was some of the career choices that we made. You know, it, it's, I think, challenge, you know, it can be challenging um, to have a two-career family um, when that's going. And it, it's just a, a, a team effort. And there were times in our careers the with, when I was doing the consulting work, I did that. That gave me a lot of flexibility in my schedule. You know, I was able to move meetings, travel, uh, plan that well. But that was a time... In, uh, in her career when she was doing a lot of stuff with the STEM Center. So her, it, it, it allowed her to do some stuff where she knew my schedule was going to be flexible if something come up with the kids to, to do that. But it is, uh, it, it, it is a full-time thing in and of itself, just scheduling all that to, to do that. It is possible, but it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a little stressful at times. But Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting to the point where I need to start thinking about that stuff, and yeah, it's it's a different skill than just you know what engineers are good at. Well, it makes you it makes you a, a much more patient person, um, just from the standpoint of especially when kids are small, whatever you think you're going to do for the day <laughs> um, can change in an instant. So that you, I think you. You learn to relax a little bit and realize the world's not going to end if this doesn't happen um, at this moment. 
but it is a, it is a big effort and um, I, I think it, it gets tougher with each generation there's just you know, people are being pulled in so many different directions uh, that you know it was certainly easier when everybody's on a farm or you know mm, yeah <laughs> everything's within walking distance of the house basically uh, hmm. to do things so so um can you tell me a little bit about the consulting that you did and why, why did you start why did you want to do consulting um so I was at one of those career transitions. Um, we were looking. It's, it really got to be that if we were going to move the family to um, for me to continue in the, the industry I was in and stuff. What, what industry was that? that? That was when I moved out of Cummins. So I was in okay. the automotive industry. Yeah. Um, I talked to a few people about doing things um, but in that same time, a few people approached me about doing consulting work with them. So I, I got started doing it. Um, as I say, it, it allowed me the flexibility at that point in my life to, uh, to do some things. And it was interesting because we, we got to play in a number of areas. We did, I did commercial food stuff. We did some in the automotive industry, some in big industrial stuff. Um, but part of that was built off the contacts I had made while I was I was working, people I knew. And, and as they moved into other companies and needed help, I okay. did that. <clears throat> and then that got me started with the, the last company I worked for. We were working on a project together and it was just using more and more of our time um, and they were looking for somebody to f fill the, the sort of advanced product development research role. So I moved into to that role and uh, uh, started doing that with them. Oh, okay. Can you t um, tell me a little bit about the difference between um, R&D versus product development? Um, so the the big r end of things is you're really researching you're looking um it's more applied research it's not what i would call university level research where you're doing stuff on a fundamental basis mm -hmm. but you're the way we used to think of it as a pipeline is as a company we need a pipeline of new stuff uh coming out and becoming products but the 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 research you really have to think of as a funnel is you may pour ten things in one end and two come out the other. So you you need to be think of it as an investment portfolio that <laughs> okay. it needs to be diverse. We may be looking at three ways to do the same thing, and we know one of them is. Um, going to be the best um you know that uh when just being engaged with that at cummins you know they were looking at all sorts of diesel technologies and modeling and what are the different catalyst technologies um 
they were looking at heterogeneous charts. They were looking at natural gas. Okay. So they were look they were looking at a bunch of stuff and had projects and spent money on it. Yeah. Uh, but you, what you tend to do is you spend little chunks of money, and then you'll review. Okay, to do the next phase of this is going to require more money. Do we think it's worth it? You know, and so you may start with ten, and then you'll narrow that down to four or five and then a couple will be stable enough to move into product development that we could use those as a, as a new product so hmm. yeah that's that, that's uh, definitely something i wanted to get into once i graduate but i probably would need a, a higher level degree to uh, yeah um actually yeah i've got a engineering management certificate i don't really have a degree uh, but certainly some of the MBA schools would focus on innovation, entrepreneurship. Okay. What most people struggle with on the research side is, any company struggle with this, is not everything's going to work. <laughs> that um, there, there was a story I, I heard. Uh, Jack Welsh was the famous CEO of GE, but very tough, very bottom line. So he's at GE Research Lab. And, and the guy tells a story after he retires that he goes through the 265 projects that the research lab had done had made like $70 billion. Um, and everybody leaves, they're happy. What he didn't tell them were five of them made $73 billion the other 260 had lost $3 billion, but he, he, you had to do the 265 to get to the five. Yeah. And, and that's what's required. It's not just, you get lucky with those three. Right. right. You know, it, it, you know, it, and, and the way to think of it is a stock portfolio that, you know, if you put all your money in one stock, you know, that may be high it's high risk, high reward. Um, so, and this is what you get into with a mature company is how they need to structure things is right. We're, we're going to look at these 10 technologies and what mature companies struggle with is even looking really? is even taking that money because um, I can spend X million dollars on research or I can spend X million dollars making my plants more efficient or marketing or, or marketing or, or it, you know bonuses a, yeah. for the uh, <laughs> exactly. the the management staff you know whatever those things are so I, um, the phrase i used to use the the present is always the enemy of the future <laughs> that uh you know research at a company is a constant struggle to protect your budget and protect the research people because the research people are typically your best and your brightest. Um, they're the really smart people. And, you know, every time you have a problem, somebody wants to assign them to fix that problem instead of working on the research project, right? Yeah. And, and you know, sometimes you do assign them to the problem because the company's going to go broke if we don't fix this, right? that if nobody's going to have a job us delaying the research project for a couple months to fix this makes sense 
but if it's every little problem you you have to and that's where you get into the management side yeah, of things of saying yeah. no <laughs> no <laughs> yeah would you say that r&d is on a lower uh priority like in terms of spending than other aspects it depends on the company okay so um, it's yeah it's dependent on yeah right, uh, uh, values va- uh, values of the company um you, you can actually look, it's, it's typically a value that's reported is their percent, uh, percent revenue spent on research. Yeah. Um, old established companies, maybe two or 3%. Um, some five or 6% is a healthy number, but you get to the big tech companies, they may be 20, 30%. Yeah. Because they're they're all about the research and. Well, I mean, you have up. to stay competitive, right? The research is what is going to be the next generation of products. Right, it's the next generation. It's what what's going to get you going. So you're going to yeah. be left behind by the competition if you don't innovate mm-hmm. constantly. So it, it it takes a balanced approach, but it's very hard for companies, especially when they get driven by their bottom line, to. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's to, to work on that thing that's is not it because pay off for what, 10 years. Yeah. Is it because of what you said that it, it's not a, a set you, if you put this in, you're going to get X out. So they're kind of, you know, it's kind of a risk. So they don't want to, we, we can put this much into marketing. We know exactly how much money that it's going to produce versus, you know, the research it could, it could not make. Yeah. Return. You, you, you don't know the returns. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. To, to geek out there, I've got a book where the guys did it that, you really have to treat it like options analysis in the oh, financial yeah. world because you're 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 not buying something you you just want to have the option to buy it in the future and that's really what research is yeah. is that because even you may spend 2 million dollars on the research but for us to take this into production maybe 10 15 million dollars mm-hmm. right to we may have to retool a whole plant or build a new plant or do something totally different yeah. um, where you spend real dollars, right, to, <laughs> to yeah. do things. So, Well, I appreciate you talking about all this. This is a like higher level than, you know, just taking a machine design or a DFM. But I, I, we, did, we did just talk about the basics. So I'm appreciate that the high level and getting to uh, what you have learned in the last couple of years. So, um, is there anything you want to? Well, one, one last question: what um what are some key lessons or takeaways from uh, your your overall career? I know it's a easy question at the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's really for me. It's about adaptability. Um, you know being adaptable you're going to get times that you know the industry you're in may go through a big change the company you're working for may be restructure and you either don't fit in the culture anymore or you're given the opportunity to pursue uh, other interests as we used to uh, uh, to say so it's it's being adaptable to that and it's also what I try to you know how do you you're in charge of your own career and that's one thing I really want to impart to students that um, you need to have some make sure you set aside some time to work on your own skills because a lot of you know as long as you're doing what the company wants and meets their needs 
they're not going to make sure that you stay current on some of the other things. So you need to make time to devote some time to doing that self-study. What are the hot trends? What, 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 it, what is happening in your industry? So. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Dr. Pardew. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thanks.